the mystery of the ragged stranger podcast my name is michael Hendricks, and i will be your host this podcast aims to take a deep look at what was one of chicago's most famous crimes a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the ragged stranger and carl wanderer this episode is the eighth and final episode of what's been an eight-part series available for download or to stream on the ragged stranger blog at chicagonow.com hopefully We've shared some Chicago history with you that you didn't know, filled in some gaps to the Ragged Stranger story, if you'd already been aware of it, and most importantly, we hope we've kept you entertained. Sincerely, thank you again for listening. There will continue to be sporadic posts on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com, as well as on our website, theraggedstranger.com, to keep you informed of any news as to the publication of my book, Kisses for Julia, Bullets for Ruth, the mystery of Carl Wanderer and the Ragged Stranger. We also will be posting some other non-Carl Wanderer-related posts, but instead we'll focus on some other random strangers from around the globe that each have their own interesting stories. But, returning to where we left off, the day before his pending execution, on September 30th, Carl's last hope to stay among the living was a second stay of execution, or to at least get his sentence commuted to life imprisonment. Governor Len Small, still under indictment for embezzlement, held Carl's fate in his hands. I am of the opinion this is a case in which the governor is not justified in interfering with the verdict of the court, and I therefore accept the verdict of the Division of Pardons and Paroles, said Governor Len Small in a signed decree, denying any additional stays of execution for Carl Wanderer. Assistant Jailer Morris Lochner had the duty of breaking the bad news to Wanderer. Calling Carl over to his bars for a chat, Wanderer waved him off as he paced back and forth in his small cell. I haven't time to talk. Well, after seeing the jailer was not going to leave and had a dour expression upon his face, the pardon board has refused a request for clemency, Carl. So, so what of it? I haven't asked them for anything. Don't you want to make some statement? Wanderer's only reply was to continue pacing in his cell, whistling as he did so. Sheriff Peter Lawrence arrived on Murderer's Row and came to Carl's cell. The sheriff belied his emotion for the killer as he avoided eye contact and struggled to get out the words. All right, Carl. The governor says you hang tomorrow. Pick up your things and we'll go to the death cell. That's all right, Lawrence. Nothing to yap about. I'm all ready to go. Carl grabbed a worn magazine and pulled from beneath his bed a newspaper clipping of a picture of him and his dead wife. Staring at it, he slowly, carefully folded it and placed it in his jacket pocket. He had dressed for the occasion with all new clothes brought to him by his family. His silk shirt with a starched collar poked out beneath a gray suit. His new tan Oxfords looked out of place on the worn, dirty floor of his cell. Come on, Carl. The governor. Well, what of it? I've been there before. I ain't afraid to die. 
I fought in France. I'm ready to go. Goodbye, Carl. You'll come back, Carl. Don't worry. Carl was taken down the elevator to the second floor. Impassively entering the death cell, Wanderer grabbed a seat on his bunk as his guards tried to control the newsmen, all wanting a word with the condemned man. Cigarettes, cigars, and matches were offered to the soon-to-be-departed. A wave of the back of his hand declined their offers. He was asked about being in the death cell again, a place most people don't visit twice. He failed to see the irony. What if I'm in the death cell again, eh? I've been in this place before. Was he hoping for another reprieve from the governor, he was asked? No, I'm through with that stuff. Why don't they get this all over with? This whole business is a lot of hokum. I never sent anybody down to Springfield. I'm not asking anybody to argue and ballyhoo on my account. Frank Cordesek, one of his jailers, went philosophical and asked Carl, Do you believe in life after death, Carl? I don't know. Maybe I'll see you on the other side. If I do, I'll shake hands with you anyway. Having handed off Wanderer to the jailers on the second floor at the death cell, Jailer Lochner went about ensuring the scaffold was ready for the next morning's job. After filling large burlap bags with sand to simulate Carl's estimated weight, he dropped them through the trap several times to test the scaffold and the rope. They worked without fault. It was said that the news of Governor Small denying the last clemency bid hit Carl's father the hardest. The widowed butcher was now going to lose his only son. He was said to be inconsolable. Meanwhile, Carl was having his last meal. Did you see what I did to my dinner? Say, I got away with the largest meal I've had in a long time. Cleaned up the plate. Carl had dined on a chicken dinner sent over from the restaurant across the alley from the jail. Joe Stein, owner of the news coffee shop, provided the meal free of charge, only asking for a signed photo from the condemned man. You know, I never sent anybody to Springfield to plead for me. It was my pa. He sold everything he got to try to save me. After his meal, he settled into a game of cards with his jailers, Fred Stedman and Alex Frodeen, and reporters Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht. Hecht wrote that he pushed Carl to allow him to publish a purported confession that Wanderer had given him. Carl's reluctance was due to not wanting his father to know he was guilty, at least knowing him guilty while Wanderer was still alive and would still have to face his father. I'd feel like hell if I went out and figured he thought I was guilty. Yes, sir. I want him to think of me as innocent. I don't want to lose that, see? They'll never know otherwise on account I got them all convinced. The papers are full of nothing but lies about me. It was said Carl displayed a gaiety not often seen in a condemned man. He sang songs, swore mightily when the cards turned against him, and appeared without a care in the world. Hack kept pushing him, though, to confess to the real motive. I'm now going to read for you from Heck's Chicago Daily News story, published after the hanging and headlined, Confesses to the Daily News. It has been lightly edited for flow. You remember last month you made a complete confession to me, and I promised it wouldn't be printed? I kept my promise, and you said if I would, you'd sign the same confession and let it be printed after your death. Go ahead, deal him up, Wanderer grinned at the guards. Your deal, said Stedman. Wanderer took the pack in his hands. His movements, although calm, were jerky. 
His hands made violent gestures, as if he were chopping wood instead of dealing cards. As he dealt to the reporter, Well, I killed Ruth and the stranger fellow, and I'll tell you why. But I don't want to write it or sign it on account of my pa and sisters. They think I'm innocent. Here Stedman laid down three jacks, and Wanderer broke off course. He went on after drawing his card from the center pack. Yes, they believe in me, and they think everything they read in the newspaper is rotten lies. So I don't care if you print it. They'll read it and say it's lies. But I'd rather be hanged twice than let my pa and sisters know that I croaked my wife. A burst of laughter from Wanderer startled Frodine. There you be, I win, said Wanderer, laying his hand out in full. This seemed to cheer him up. The guards simulated a bitter indignation at losing the game, but nobody kept score. Sedman shuffled the deck and dealt again. He's licking the stuffing out of us, Frodine mumbled, to which Wanderer laughed. During his talk, Wanderer played on. The guards kept up a running fire of small talk, concentrating entirely on the game, acting as if they were playing for terrific stakes, and as if every move was a matter of consequence. Wanderer caught the spirit of this mockery, and cursed fervently when luck turned, and laughed wildly when the cards went good. Now, about your reasons for killing your wife and the stranger, the reporter asked. Wanderer cried with another burst of laughter, and laid his cards down. Say, ain't I hanging it on you? Then, as Frodine was dealing again, he said to the reporter, Well, it was this way. I killed Ruth first. I didn't want her to see me kill the other. I know that it was a dirty, rotten trick, but, goddamn, I don't know why in the hell I did it. You know, I was afraid that the guy wouldn't show up. Ruth was interested in the movies, and it was raining, and I talked it over briefly with the guy, and he said he'd hold us up in our hallway after we'd come home from the show. Yes, we know all that, but why did you want to kill Ruth? The reporter asked. Three tens and out. You gotta hand it to me, said Wanderer. Sedman dealt, Wanderer threw his head back, and began to sing. His voice was loud and clear. He inserted a number of musical trills, which he fondly imagined increased the lachrymose effectiveness of the tune. The song finished, he turned to the reporter, and while playing his cards with care went on, it's a funny thing about me, you know. I never went with a girl in my life before Ruth. I hated girls. You can believe it or not, but I was straight, perfectly straight when I got married. And I couldn't stand even Ruth. I couldn't stand the idea of ever being alone with her or having to touch her, see? That's how straight I was. Wanderer assumed an air of high moral integrity, seemingly ignorant of the fact that he was confessing himself to be an out-and-out -out pathological character. Well, it was pretty bad. I liked Ruth. She was my pal. But I didn't like her as a girl. Just as a pal. Wanderer's words here became the psychological slang of the gutter. The sense of them was, It went on that way for some time, and then I realized she was going to be a mother, and I felt terrible. You can't imagine how I felt. I couldn't stand it to figure she was going to be a mother of my child. The whole idea was repugnant to me. Wanderer's attitude here, obviously unknown to him, was in accordance with the pathological stigma under which he labored. An aversion for women, common to people so affected, 
is usually heightened to a terror in them when motherhood is involved, physicians say. It is commonplace for sociopaths of wanderer's type to undergo emotions and pains similar to that of the women whose conditions they are responsible for, they add. Well, then I didn't want to leave her. She would suffer too much. I couldn't stand it if she suffered. So I figured out the only way out was to kill her. And I got this poor boob to frame a hold up on. And I killed them both. It was now two o'clock. The guards played faithfully on. Wanderer's calm seemed to remain intact. But his gestures became jerkier. He yawned and then straightened in his chair. That's how it was. Didn't want to have her suffer, see? Couldn't stand the idea of the kid coming, see? So I croaked her. Say, that was rotten, wasn't it? Why not sign the confession like you promised me, persisted the reporter. Ruth knows you're guilty anyway. Yeah, she knows, but, but she's with me. You mean you see her sometimes? She's with me, and I'll see her soon. Are you going to give the identity of the ragged stranger? asked the reporter. Ah, uh, that's old stuff. I didn't know him. Just picked him up. He was a boob. Honest. I don't think anybody will ever find out, because I didn't know him at all. The game of rummy went on for another two hours. Dawn came. Wanderer seemed tired. But he continued to play with increased intensity. The guards were still simulating a violent interest in every turn of the cards. Occasionally, Wanderer sang. He seemed to find singing the best outlet for the tensity of his nerves. When it had become dawn, he said to the guards, I wish you'd let me take the cigar on the scaffold. In his first mention of the scaffold, the guards pretended they did not hear. Wanderer persisted concerning his cigar. Sheriff Peters appeared. The Reverend C.V. Sandvoss, a Lutheran minister, had also appeared and the time for the death march was approaching. There was talk of breakfast, but Wanderer had started praying. He was repeating the prayers of the minister. Nix, nothing to eat. His voice had lost some of its clearness. He began to pray passionately and sang, Oh, into your hands I give my spirit, repeating the Lutheran ritual after the minister. When he had finished an hour of prayer, he remembered about the cigar. I got a stub I'd like to smoke on the scaffold. No, better not, said Sheriff Peters. The death march started. Wanderer handcuffed now, walked quickly from the second floor cell to the death room. He began to sing. The march started at 7.14. We'll return to Heck's article here in a little bit. But the day before what would have been his two-year wedding anniversary... Carl, wearing a white robe, was led to the gallows by the sheriff, jailers, and minister. With his arms and hands shackled to his sides, he shuffled his feet up onto the scaffold. Again, he sang. A song that some viewed as an ode to the wife he killed. I'll spare you me singing it, but it goes like this. The long night through, I wait for you. Old pal, why don't you answer me? Sheriff Lawrence slipped a noose over Carl's head and positioned the rope to the left side of Wanderer's neck in the hope that the noose would break his neck, giving him a painless death. My arms embrace an empty space. The arms that held you tenderly. 
Carl paused as the noose was tightened snug. If you can hear my prayer away up there, old pal, why don't you answer me? The long night through, I wait for you. Old pal, why don't you answer me? My arms embrace an empty space, the arms that held you tenderly. If you can hear my prayer away up there, old pal, why don't you answer me? A white hood was placed over Wanderer's head, muffling his singing. Hoodwinked, Carl was alone with his thoughts for his last few seconds. The singing stopped, and whispered prayers started. God have mercy on my soul. 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 At 7.19, the morning of September 30th, 1921, the trap was sprung, and Carl Wanderer was hanged until dead. The positioning of the noose on his left went for naught. Carl's death certificate would list death by asphyxiation as his cause of death. And so, our story ends. Right? Well, not exactly. If you've been paying attention, you know anything Carl Wanderer related is never as simple as it appears. With Wanderer hanged in the morning, coupled with the fact that the Chicago Daily News was an afternoon paper, it allowed Heck to be one of the first to write of it. Contrary to Heck's claim of a confession, the following day Chicago Daily Tribune carried the headline, Wanderer Dies, Scorning Plea for Confession. The article would report that both of his jailers, Frodena Stedman, said, Wanderer refused to make any statement of any kind, despite the importunities of a newspaper man who kept vigil with him. Another issue I take with Heck's article that day is he quotes Wanderer extensively, yet when it comes to where he describes Wanderer finding the idea of his coming child to be repugnant to him, he then paraphrases Wanderer's words under the guise of, the sense of them was. Conveniently for Heck, Wanderer was not going to be around to refute the statements attributed to him. How's that axiom go? Dead men tell no tales? Another issue with Heck's article that day after Wanderer had been hanged is that Heck says that Wanderer says he'd never went out with girls before Ruth, when we know that was not the case. Besides Ruth, he had dated Grace Horn and, of course, Julius Schmidt. The personal tie to the story of living in the house where the murder happened has been interesting to say the least. First, reading about the story in a book on haunted houses was enough to make the hair on my neck stand on end. I love a good mystery, but horror or paranormal activity stories aren't typically my cup of tea. That said, while I haven't seen Ruth's ghost patrolling the street out in front of the house, I have had one occurrence that, while not supernatural, wasn't 100% normal. One night, I woke in the middle of the night to what I believed to be my wife calling my name from the front of our apartment. I don't typically remember my dreams a great deal, and never to the point where I wake up. This night, though, I swore I heard her calling me, and it seemed so real that it got me up out of bed to investigate. 
I searched the front of the apartment and didn't find her. So I opened the front door, stepped into the vestibule, and again didn't find her. Finally, standing there, I remembered that she was in New York City for the weekend and couldn't possibly have been calling me. If you can't tell by now, I'm a bit of a skeptic of most things, and without seeing a ghost with my own two eyes, I can't call this an encounter with a spirit. Though, speaking of spirits, in full disclosure, there was a bit of gin drank the night in question, and since that night, the only spirit to make a reappearance has been the gin. While not a moment of any paranormal type, another aha moment came while standing in the vestibule and picturing the events happening. In the course of standing where Carl would have been and going over the events in my head, I remembered of Carl telling how he nearly shot himself in the foot while drawing both guns. Moving over the thin entryway rug in the vestibule, one tile in the entire floor had been replaced, right where Wanderer would have been standing. Goosebumps. In researching the story, the one character that proved the most elusive was unfortunately the one that deserved to be remembered in the best possible light. Ruth, from what I found, was a wife that would have made any man proud. Her choice in men may have been her only fault. That Carl was the only man she ever loved is one last insult. I'm glad I haven't been able to find a photo of a pregnant Ruth. This story was dastardly enough as it was. To take out an unborn babe just goes to show how unconscionable Carl was. Another moment that sent shivers up my spine was when, after compiling the true X's and O's of who was standing where in the vestibule, I realized the position of Ruth, or more precisely, the position of Ruth's near eight-month pregnant belly. Where Wanderer was standing, the barrel of his forty-five could not have been much more than one foot away. It's absolutely frightening, the cold-bloodedness Wanderer displayed for his own wife and unborn child. Ruth is buried in Graceland Cemetery, just north of Wrigley Field, and for the past couple years, I've been going to her grave a few times a year. The earth was trying to swallow up the Johnson family headstones, but fortunately, she has not forgotten. Through my research, I found a distant relative of Ruth through Ancestry.com, and that person had visited her grave in the past and helped prune back some sod so her stone could be found. I continue to do the same on my visits. Nearly 100 years later, Ruth is not forgotten. Carl's grave, on the other hand, has proved more elusive. His death certificate lists Mount Rose Cemetery, which seems to be a typo for Montrose Cemetery on the northwest side. Though his death certificate listed as a cemetery of record, they say they have no records for Wanderer having been buried there. With the animosity felt towards Carl, would not be surprised if his family had him buried in secret in order to prevent his grave from being desecrated. The war records of Carl Wanderer and most of our World War I veterans were destroyed in a fire at the National Archives in the 1970s. The only record I was able to obtain from Carl's war service was his last pay voucher, with the only new information gleaned from that document being that Carl left his service with a payday of $58.32 a little less than $700 in today's money. A July 13, 1920 story in the Washington Times printed a statement from the U.S. War Department that listed some of the particulars of Wanderer's war service. Enlistment date, units he served in, rank promotions and their dates, and his discharge date. After learning what unit he was in, I was able to trace that unit's movements 
through the Order of Battle of the United States Land Forces in the World War, published in 1931 by the Army War College, which detailed each division's makeup and deployments. The information in the war manuals tallied with the fascinating war diary I found from Private Paul Lesher, a young soldier from Transfer, Pennsylvania. Private Lesher was assigned to the 17th Machine Gun Battalion that at that time Sergeant Wanderer was in command of. While Lesher's diary never mentions Carl by name, his experiences as far as what he saw and where he was were used to set the scene of training in Georgia and fighting, or more accurately marching, in Europe. Through my research of Wanderer's war service, I found many things that I thought I knew and had pictured in my head were vastly different than reality. The fact that Carl had enlisted in the U.S. Army and was stationed in Mexico while World War I raged in Europe had been lost on me. Carl's time in Europe provided several eye-openers to me as well. The fact that Carl re-enlisted in 1917 and then did not reach France for another year after that Landing less than four months before the armistice was signed made me again reevaluate what I thought I knew. And not to be understated, the sacrifices and horrors experienced by the soldiers, nurses, and civilians in that war far exceeded what I knew and are truly awe-inspiring to me. Carl was executed despite documented mental frailties that likely would have spared his life had this occurred today. Whatever his diagnosis, he would be in familiar company on death row today. In 2015, there were about 3,000 prisoners on death row, with about 300 of those being U.S. military veterans, having served in our defense in every conflict from the Korean War up through Iraq and Afghanistan. Mental illness, whether hereditary or as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder or other causes, is too often overlooked until something horrific occurs. Our heroes deserve better care and attention before something brings their plight to light. Carl's confession truly is a Q&A rather than a tell-us-the-story type of confession. Of 218 questions, Carl answers 96 questions with a one- or two-word answer, when nearly half of the confession is bare affirmations or negations. Are you getting a true confession from the criminal? Or a confession put into the criminal's weakened mind by trained detectives after 16 hours of relentless questioning? In the confession, Carl sounded like a broken man right off the bat, trying to please his interrogators with what he thought they were looking for. He was able to fill in some details of the when and how, but not the why. His interrogators couldn't grasp the lack of a why and tried to force different motives on him. The striking differences between the questions asked by Coroner Hoffman, a former grocer with no formal legal training before entering politics, and the questions asked by the state's attorneys with law degrees makes it easy to see why we moved away from having politicians and towards lawyers and doctors hold such inquests. His questions are not only leading, but sometimes he pulls the interrogation away from valuable and compelling testimony from Carl. One of the most interesting aspects of the confession is that even while confessing to a triple homicide, Wanderer cannot help but to sprinkle his confession with lies. Barely 20 questions in, Carl lies about talking to his wife about the $1,500 she withdrew from the bank. Why lie about that during the midst of a murder confession? Later in the confession, he does it again. Is Carl such a pathological liar that even while trying to tell the truth, he can't help himself but lie? In speaking of the act of killing his wife, he does it again when he says, I did not want to shoot my wife, despite the fact that the muzzle of the gun 
could not have been further than one to two feet from his wife when he shot her in the tiny vestibule. He never meant anything else but to shoot her. Another troubling part of the confession surrounded Carl's explanation, or lack thereof, of how he had convinced the ragged stranger, who supposedly came to meet Carl on the pretense of being offered a $25 a week job driving a truck, that rather than that job, that he was going to commit a holdup of Carl and his wife in a fake robbery attempt. The ragged stranger had no problem going from a steady, honorable job to committing a felony. Towards the end of the confession, it becomes very apparent that Carl was a tired man with a heavy soul, coupled with somewhat limited intelligence. The police and state's attorneys were almost incredulous that Carl had put such little planning or thought to what he would do after the murder. The fact that he would forget the $1,500 in his bureau drawer, that he had no getaway plan, and the fact that he had not thought that the serial-numbered guns would be able to be traced, all confused a lawman. After his confession, had Carl been allowed to plead guilty, as he had tried to do before being assigned an attorney, the city of Chicago would have saved over what would be $600,000 in today's money, his father wouldn't have spent his life savings trying to defend him, and justice would not have been so delayed. Coroner Hoffman was coroner from 1904 until 1922, when he was elected sheriff on the particular mandate of cleaning up the graft and corruption in the county jail. Later, Hoffman and his deputy sheriff would both be charged for contempt of court in 1925 for giving gangsters Terry Druggan and Frankie Lake special privileges while in jail, namely being able to come and go from the jail as they pleased. After being found guilty, Hoffman was sentenced to 30 days in jail, and after numerous appeals failed, Hoffman was forced to serve time in the very jail he was sheriff of and in charge of overseeing. He would remain sheriff for four years after serving time in his own jail. While Judge David may have arrived at the correct sentence in the long run, how he got to that point left much to be desired. His open disdain for the alienist testifying before him tainted the jury and gave the prosecutors unfettered leeway to change the focus of the trial. The toxicity of anything wanderer was likely the only thing that kept a higher court from hearing Carl's appeal, and with such an appeal, the likelihood of fault being found with Judge David. Judge David had originally been appointed to the bench to fill a vacancy in 1916, and spent the majority of his time in the civil courts, while he filled in from time to time on the criminal bench. It was such a fill-in in 1921 that landed the Wanderer trial in his lap. Months after helping the state obtain the death sentence for Carl, Judge David was named by State's Attorney Crow to a permanent position on the criminal bench. Crow would later regret the assignment, though. In 1922, Judge David halted a trial, not believing the prosecution had made its case. The judge ordered the jury to issue a not guilty verdict on the spot, despite some members of the jury later telling the press they believed the guilty verdict would have been appropriate. Less than a year after Judge David had proceeded over two of Carl Wanderer's trials, State's Attorney Crow announced he would seek to have Judge David removed from the bench. It is with the greatest reluctance I criticize the conduct of a member of the bench, and I do so now only because, in my judgment, public justice requires me to perform this unpleasant task. Judge David has demonstrated by his conduct in the trial of criminal cases that he is, to say the least, 
temperamentally unfit to preside in the trial of cases where the public is interested in seeing the law enforced. The judge disagreed. The June 23, 1923 Chicago Daily Tribune read, Judge David, however, said that it didn't make any difference what the jurors thought about the case. I had a perfect right to take the case away from the jury and instruct a verdict of not guilty. The state had no evidence worth mentioning. It was simply a waste of the people's money to go on trying the case. The effort to remove the judge from the bench petered out, and he remained on the bench for another 15 years after this. Like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Judge David, a noted spiritualist and ghost believer, presided over a civil trial in 1925 that saw a supposed voodoo spiritualist suing for slander another spiritualist. The alleged slander was to a spirit medium known to both spiritualists. But how do you get the testimony of a spirit? Well, with a seance, of course. Judge David ordered the courtroom darkened, the lights turned off, the shades drawn, and had candles lit. Plaintiff Julia Johnson attempted to summon the spirit, known as Mr. Jones, but instead got the dead mother of one of the court's spectators. Judge David asked if the spiritualist could summon a dead relative of his. Oh, get my father! He's been dead a long time! The judge said from his bench in the middle of a trial. Later, he wondered about spirits communicating in the afterworld. Can they talk to each other in the spirit world? Could Napoleon and Caesar hold a discussion? I suppose they would have an argument over which was the greatest butcher. Judge David would serve on the bench until his passing in 1938. His obituary would mention his sitting on the bench for famous trials, Carl Wanderer being first and foremost. The obituary would also say, One of the most energetic judges on the bench. He was criticized at times for taking a too active part in proceedings. After getting a change of venue granted, Illinois Governor Len Small would go on to trial on his embezzlement charges in Waukegan, 40 miles north of his powerful Chicago backers, rather than 200 miles south in the state capital of Springfield in Sagamon County. His final verdict from the great people of Illinois would be acquittal on all charges related to the embezzlement of Illinois funds, and he would be re-elected to the governorship in 1924. That's not to say he wasn't guilty. Eight of the twelve jurors in the trial later received government jobs with the state of Illinois. A mobster and two jurors would later go on trial and be acquitted of jury tampering. The Chicago political machine kept churning. And it's still churning today. Four of Illinois' last ten governors have not only been indicted, but convicted and sentenced to prison. How many other jobs have a recent 40% incarceration rate? Before former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich went to prison in 2012, he didn't live too far from the Wanderer House in the old Ravenswood Manor neighborhood. Our old dog walker once encountered a jogging Blagojevich at an intersection down the street while his corruption charges were coming to light. Our dog snarled, missed you Kaya, and our dog walker, missed you Spike, told Blago, you can run, but you can't hide. Barring a presidential pardon, Blagojevich will be in prison until at least 2024. Ben Heck's Wikipedia page states, While at the Chicago Daily News, Heck famously broke the 1921 Ragged Stranger murder case story about the murder of Carl Wanderer's wife 
which led to the trial and execution of war hero Carl Wanderer. Let's take a closer look and see how accurate that statement is. Ben Hecht was one of the most celebrated writers of the 20th century. He was the ghostwriter of Marilyn Monroe's autobiography. He was the winner of the inaugural Academy Award for Story Writing, now known as Best Screenplay, which was one of his two Oscar wins from six nominations. He won for Underworld and for The Scoundrel, and was nominated for Viva Via, Wuthering Heights, Angels Over Broadway, and Notorious. While he was originally credited with over 70 screenplays, IMDb now credits him with at least a partial writing credit for 165 films, including Scarface, Gunga Din, Some Like It Hot, Gone with the Wind, His Girl Friday, Guys and Dolls, The Man with the Golden Arm, A Farewell to Arms, and Mutiny on the Bounty, to name a few. His books, plays, and essays include Eric Dorn, Franzius Millar, A Mysterious Oath, A Jew in Love, A Thousand and One Afternoons in Chicago, and The Front Page. One thing he did not do is solve the mystery of the ragged stranger. Much of what has previously been written about Carl Wander and the ragged stranger case has been credited back to Hecht, wrongly so in my opinion. Besides the fact that he was never called to testify at any of Carl Wanderer's three trials, while several other newspaper reporters did testify to the roles they played in the story, Hecht himself never said he solved the crime, and the narrative that he did largely came out well after Hecht's death, an interesting irony that we'll get into later. The notion that Ben Hecht solved the Ragged Stranger mystery is really born of the narrative that Wanderer had a homosexual lover named James something one might be led to believe after a cursory Google search about the story. Today, I'm going to share with you what I found in my research about Hex's penchant for hyperbole, Hex's view on sex in relation to Carl and his alleged lover James, and how the narrative of James' existence didn't emerge until over 50 years after the crime occurred. As you heard, Hex had an immense career. With such a catalog of his life's work to review, I understand that a few things I'm going to share with you may seem cherry-picked solely for their sensational nature. And while that's true to some extent, I mean, come on, just wait until you hear some of this, I believe you'll see these stories for what they are and come to the same conclusions I have. In a city that has printed more than its share of rapier-like wit, the likes of Carl Sandburg, Mike Royko, Studs Terkel, and Nelson Algren, to name a few, one writer is about a Chicago as Chicago gets. Irv Cups in it. In his book, Cup's Chicago, a many-faceted and affectionate portrait of Chicago, Cup wrote of how loose with the truth reporters used to be. Of Hecht, he wrote, Few reporters have confessed to even wilder escapades. Ben Hecht, for example, delights to recall the days when, with the aid of photographer Gene Coor, he titillated Chicago journal readers with a succession of downright hoaxes, a series of accounts of piracy along the Chicago River, a major disaster involving a runaway streetcar, and even a description of an earthquake that supposedly shook the north side. That earthquake story, said Heck later, wasn't such a good idea. I had to quote every relative I had to make it convincing, and creating a fissure along the lakeshore took over two hours of hard digging. Heck might have continued his scoops indefinitely, but to illustrate a story about an exiled Romanian princess, he selected an unfortunate model for his photographs. 
one of the Vice District's most spectacularly notorious prostitutes. Only Hex promised to cease with such shenanigans saved him from his job. Subsequent work for the Daily News showed Hecht to not only be a good newspaper man, but a gifted, creative writer. Hecht apparently thought so little of the Wanderer case that it merited but one sentence in the 650-plus pages of Hecht's 1954 autobiography, A Child of the Century, Ben Hecht. That mere sentence didn't speak of Hecht breaking the crime or of an alleged homosexual lover named James. It told of how Carl died singing a song on the gallows. Hecht would also write in his autobiography of his intimate knowledge, not only of Chicago, but of sex via Dr. Wilhelm Steckel's teachings. Of Steckel, Hecht wrote, a psychoanalyst like a first Robin appeared with a Viennese accent. His name is Dr. Steckel, and he brought the good news to town that chastity was a disease responsible for most of the lunacy in this world, especially among ladies. Three years after writing his own life story, Hecht took on the biography of his writing partner, Charles MacArthur, after he had passed away after years of declining health. Here, Hecht wrote in much greater detail about the Ragged Stranger case, and even opened the book, telling of how it was MacArthur who broke the case of the Ragged Stranger, along with a little help from Hecht, of course. In the 35 years that had passed since the murder and Hecht's recounting of the story in 1957, his recollections have changed drastically. Fortunately, we have a Chicago Daily News article for comparison. Hex recounting of the story has many small errors. Gun C2282 originally being sold to John Hoffman rather than Peter Hoffman, who Hex states was a friend rather than a brother-in-law of Fred Wanderer. Hex wrote how Mrs. Wanderer was killed instantly rather than dying upstairs in her parents' flat 15 to 20 minutes later after the shooting. He said that the American Legion immediately got involved on Carl's behalf, rather than over a year after the murder, right before he was about to be put to death. Hecht wrote that Wanderer was a pansy, and again referenced Dr. Steckel, this time of reading a book in which the doctor wrote that homosexuals grew much disturbed when their wives became pregnant. Faced with the proof of their unwanted manhood, they sometimes become violent. Hecht wrote how he lectured Chief Norton, rather than Sergeant Norton, about his theory, and only after that lecture did Norton call Carl back in for a second interview, and only then did he learn that Ruth Wanderer had been pregnant. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that one of the detectives that arrived on the scene would have been able to determine that the seven-month pregnant Ruth, who lay dead next to a crib in baby clothes, had indeed been pregnant. Hecht also recounted another story that would have been troubling if true. Hecht wrote, A bartender named Andy put in a bid for the corpse. He laid it in state on the end of the bar and doubled his business. Hundreds passed through the saloon to see if the ragged stranger was known to them and paused to shake their heads over a beer. This lying in state story can only, by the very elusive sense, be based on saloon keeper Barney Clamage and his paying the fees to give the ragged stranger a proper burial. At no time was Clamage ever alleged to have taken possession of the body of the ragged stranger. Later, Heck told another story that is again likely too good to be true. Or, like Irv Cupson had suggested, he was just a great creative writer. Something you'll get no argument from me about. <laughs> 
Hecht wrote that Chicago started the practice of only partially embalming murder victims as they were delivered to the morgue, writing of a, quote, powerful-looking Negro, end quote, named Walter, who was the assistant keeper of the morgue, Hecht told of a morgue mystery of corpse mutilation. Every week or so, some animal gnawed off part of a cadaver. Wally turned out to be the culprit. He suffered from periodic throwbacks to cannibalism. He had tackled an undertaker's reject, and a dose of embalming fluid put an end to him. After that, the matter was cleared up, and the rule of half embalming the bodies went into effect. Periodic throwbacks to cannibalism? Are you kidding me? In his 1963 book, Gaily Gaily, Heck delved into greater detail of meeting Dr. Steckel, detail that puts both men and their subsequent writings in perspective. Now, I know one story does not give the full measure of a man, but this one story, I think, encapsulates both men and the time period to some extent compared to now. Heck first prefaced the story by saying, Although memory is as much a part of me as the features on my face, it has seemingly divorced itself from me and retired to some lonely attic without a stairway leading to it. After such a preface, I would normally recommend taking what you're about to hear next with a grain of salt, but once you hear it, I'm sure that will go without saying. Heck told of meeting Dr. Steckel at the Chicago Beach Hotel for an interview in the Chicago Journal, a newspaper Heck worked at from 1910 to 1914. Dr. Wilhelm Steckel received me in a crowded hotel suite. He was a tall, paunchy man with a memorable Van Dyke beard. He spoke determined but heavily accented English. I'm going to spare you the uh, accent, but he said, The subconscious is a mass stranger inside us, a sort of stowaway in our soul. He whispers to us to join him in perverse sex activities to which we are consciously opposed. Hex editor at the journal delighted in the tenor of the story, and told Hecht, Our readers will be thrilled to learn that they are all potential lunatics who want to stab their fathers or go to bed with their mothers. The editor, knowing Hecht's reputation, had to ask, You haven't made all this up, have you? To which Hecht replied, No, sir. It's 95% exactly what Dr. Steckel said. Hecht and Dr. Steckel would go on to spend a fair amount of time together with Hecht even working as an analyst for Dr. Steckel, if you'll believe it. A student of Dr. Sigmund Freud, Dr. Steckel took a particular interest in how sex manifested itself in our dreams and daily life. Dr. Steckel's published works include Sex and Dreams, The Language of Dreams, Bisexual Love, The Homosexual Neurosis, Disguises of Love, Psychoanalytical Sketches, Impotence in the Male, Psychic Disorders of Sexual Function in the Male, and Nietzsche and Wagner, a sexual psychological study of the psychogenesis of friendship and friendship betrayal. Ben Heck's personal feelings for Carl Wanderer ultimately come through in some of his earlier writings and are openly stated in some of his later works. Heck's fascination with Dr. Steckel offers some insight to where those feelings may have been developed. The story I'm about to tell you about the Waldos is a perfect example. It's admittedly a rather long story, but Heck's writing is beautiful, and a story really needs to be heard in its near entirety. In his book, Gaily Gaily, Heck recounted that his initial article on Dr. Steckel and the burgeoning field of psychoanalysis had made the doctor extremely pleased 
and caused him to be overfull with patients. Hecht called on the doctor at his hotel suite again, and the doctor told Hecht he needed a new assistant and wanted Hecht to be the man. No medical or psychoanalytical training is required. A reporter will go to the home of an important patient and make observations for me. Seckel told Hecht that the patient he would be seeing was a prominent local attorney, George Waldo, whose subconscious caused a man to be afflicted with attacks of globus hystericus, which is Latin for essentially getting a lump in your throat, which prevented him from giving his final plea to a jury on behalf of a guilty client. Supposedly, the attorney's own guilt for something was leading to his affliction. Steckel wanted Hecht to attend a dinner party with the attorney, who Hecht previously knew socially and disdained, so that Hecht could take notes on the dinner for Dr. Steckel. I sat at a shadowy but costly dining table and listened to a George Waldo sex lecture multiplied by two. Mrs. Waldo was an even more embarrassing conversationalist than her erotomaniacal husband. Hecht described Mrs. Waldo as a lean woman of 30, sharp, boyish features under a tipsy hill of blonde hair. Bony arms and stringy shoulders were exposed by a red velvet dinner dress, which also featured the unexpected fact of two oversized breasts. They bulged triumphantly in the candlelight and were as hard to ignore as a pair of trained poodles. But they had a rival, her mouth. It seemed never to close. Her conversation offered an almost uninterrupted view of her insides. Hecht, the 18-year-old reporter come psychoanalyst, listened to husband and wife speak explicitly about their sex lives and sex in general. I had never heard such obscene babble in the lowest of brothels. Asked to contribute some of my own personal sex lore, I decided to end my career as a scientist and go home. Rather than go home on a rainy Saturday night, however, Hex said the Waldos tried to convince him to spend the night in their guest room. I gave in and agreed to stay the night and found myself drinking out of a constantly refilled glass of rye whiskey. Heck later spent a lot of time vomiting in the bathroom after having been led to the guest room by Mr. Waldo. Later, a sound awakened me out of dizzied sleep, and I beheld what every young man dreams of, a vision of female loveliness invading his bedroom. I was still too drunk to know it was Ethel Waldo. If there is any erotic form in my report of what followed, it is proof of my deficiencies as a writer. The married woman told Hecht, You mustn't be worried. George has taken his sleeping medicine. I gave him an extra spoonful. He'll sleep like a pig till noon. I had never known a married woman carnally. I said nothing, more ashamed of protesting than of yielding. It is proof how little a man's character means to him, that I was able to embrace successfully a woman who filled my mind only with derogatory shudders. After waking alone, Hex said he was about to make his getaway when Mrs. Waldo entered his room in a robe as festive as a maypole and told him her husband had been called away on business and would be gone the rest of the day. The day was worse than the night had been. I had read about nymphomania and not been alienated by its morbid details. An overpassionate female, in print can seem even companionable. But a perfumed and beribboned Mrs. Waldo, happy as a kitten prancing around a ball of yarn, was nothing the body or mind could enjoy. She reduced sex to an illness, reminded me of people I had seen die in convulsions, 
of autopsies I'd watched done, of the disorders of the natural type, such as tidal waves and earthquakes. Mrs. Waldo grew more unpalatable with every embrace. Her abyss of a mouth, the companion abyss of her craving, her spasms and greedy gyrations, and their calliope accompaniments began to nauseate me. Suddenly, Mrs. Waldo started voicing the fine love she felt for me. During one of her woozy, mouth-smacking flights of exultation, I hit her on the chin and knocked her out. I dressed and bolted. Dr. Steckel listened to my Waldo report with little interest. I omitted my amour with Mrs. Waldo and was surprised at his not seeing through me. The doctor told Hecht that he was interested in a sex talk. But what made him take notice was when Heck told Steckel that dinner was taken by candlelight and that candles and gas were the only illumination in the Waldo house. In a eureka moment, Dr. Steckel posited the lack of electricity was due to Mr. Waldo's subconscious planning to murder Mrs. Waldo. Mr. Waldo hid his murder plot from his consciousness. We will find out absolutely that it was Mr. Waldo's wishes to keep his home old-fashioned and without electricity. Why? So he could have gas. And why gas? Because it is gas he intends as a weapon. He hopes to dispose of his wife by asphyxiation. Notice carefully that word. It is an asphyxiation symptom that the husband suffers with. When he begins to answer a jury on his innocence of his client, Mr. Waldo releases from his subconscious the knowledge of his own guilt as a murderer to be. Heck then wrote how rather than kill his wife, Mr. Waldo intended to divorce her after Mrs. Waldo had run off with another man. Unfortunately, as related to the unmarried Hecht, Mrs. Waldo had taken dozens of lovers and apparently shared the details of each dalliance with Mr. Waldo. As all her other lovers had been married men with families that could be destroyed, Mr. Waldo intended to sue his wife for divorce and wanted Hecht to swear in a deposition and in court that he had sexual intercourse with the married woman. After what he termed to be a blackmail plot, Hecht reluctantly sat for deposition and told his tale. In the months leading up to the divorce trial, such a cloud hung over Hecht that he said, There were comments on my pallor and odd stare. I was asked whether it was a frustrated love or a venereal disease. My elders gave me advice on both. As if this tale wasn't odd enough, Hecht wrote of how he learned that he would not have to worry about a divorce trial. His editor sent him to cover a hot story about a victim of love. With a photographer named Bunny Hare at his side, Hecht set out for the crime scene. We followed a policeman into a dimly lighted basement. Other policemen were there. Bunny Hare aimed his large camera at the subject, a nude female body sitting upright in a kitchen chair, and shot off his flash powder. In the sudden blaze, I saw Ethel Waldo's face. It was stiffened in a tilted posture. Then the face disappeared. The flashlight explosion had jarred the corpse and undone the ex-murderer's savage work. I stared at the floor and watched Ethel Waldo's head roll towards me. Ethel's murderer was never caught, and there was no one ever to relate the story of her killing. But I knew it well from the instant I saw her staring crookedly in the flashlight blaze. I remembered hitting her in the four-poster bed and knocking her out. Someone had hit her harder. 
Hex editor praised him. That's a real solid scoop. Identifying that detachable head before the police got hold of her name? We beat every paper in town by a full hour. I intend to call your genius to Mr. Eastman's attention. Mr. Eastman, the Chicago Journal's owner, gave Heck a raise of $2.50 per week for his scoop. The concept that sex sells would not be lost on Hecht. Beyond Heck's personal feelings about Carl being a homosexual, there are a few other things to look at. One, Dr. William J. Hickson's initial diagnosis of Wanderer being afflicted with latent homosexuality. If you'll recall, this diagnosis was after Carl supposedly told the doctor that the reason he had killed his wife was so that he could go back to the army. Wanting to return to the military, surrounded by other men, evidently meant he was gay, with what was known as the military complex of homosexuality. Not exactly what I would call a definitive diagnosis that would hold muster today. Dr. Hickson explained then, We can now add latent homosexuality to the complication. Psychoanalysis has revealed that a mania for army life is one of the inevitably distinguishing characteristics of women-haters, men with degeneracy either latent or functioning in them. It comes out at that time in Wanderer, two days before he kills, because of a sudden aversion for responsibility. The running away from responsibility is the most general symptom of the Praycox. Here he is going to become a father. His wife is undoubtedly having troubles normal to such a condition. These things wear on him. He finally decides to leave. His relations with his wife have been perfunctory, outwardly normal, but so far as his emotions are concerned, entirely perfunctory. Now, impelled to run from responsibility, his one real emotion asserts itself. This is the desire for army life. In our laboratory here, one of the fundamental tests to ferret out from a man whether he is homosexual is to ask him to tell us his dreams. Usually he'll try to boast of his masculinity by reciting he dreams of heroic things, armies marching, battles, deeds of valor. This, however, is invariably a dead giveaway. It becomes at once obvious to us that he has a military complex of homosexuality, and invariably we secure his confession by confronting him with a scientific statement written in books that many dreams of army life may mean a state of physical degeneracy. While Hecht may have started the notion that Carl was a homosexual, he never wrote that Wanderer had a lover named James. When I first started researching the story, I started at the time of the crime, June 21, 1920, and started working my way forward. Hundreds of articles from newspapers, from the Palm Beach Post to the Seattle Star, were studied. Court transcripts of testimony given under oath were read. Essays and anthologies and magazines and books written in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s were perused. Heck's early writings were compared to his later writings. Nowhere did I find any mention of James. The first mention of James that I did find was in Blood Letters and Bad Men, a narrative encyclopedia of American criminals from the Pilgrims to the Current by Chicago writer J. Robert Nash. This encyclopedia-like tome of criminals was first published in 1973, over 50 years after the crime was committed. From the very first words, Carl Otto Wanderer, the story is littered with many errors as it relates to the story of Carl Oscar Wanderer. Beyond his middle name, 
which is easily found printed in his confession and on his draft card. His date of birth, his date of death, his nationality, etc. are all wrong. Not to bog down this podcast with corrections, on a Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com, there is a blog post that lays out an evidentiary case that will back up with documents everything that I'm going to tell you here. Before we get to James, I'm just going to review with you the opening summary that Mr. Nash's encyclopedia has for the entry on Carl Wanderer. Wanderer, Carl Otto. We just said that's incorrect. Middle name is Oscar. She was documented in his World War I draft registrations and many other records. Born, 1887. Again, incorrect. He was born on June 26, 1895, which again can be found on the aforementioned documentation. Died, 1921. He is as kind of correct. Carl did die in 1921, though Nash later in the entry dates his death as March 19, 1921, rather than his correct date of death, September 30, 1921. Nash gets the beginning of Wanderer's background correct. Born and raised in Chicago, grade school education, worked as a butcher. But it quickly goes astray again, though. Nash correctly states that Carl was a member of the cavalry in the U.S. Army, but incorrectly states that he served in 1916 as a part of General Blackjack Pershing's Mexican Punitive Expedition to hunt Pancho Villa. Military records, however, show that Wanderer's military service was from 1912 to 1915 and 1917 to 1919. Speaking of his later war service, Nash says Wanderer was a lieutenant on the Western Front earning several citations for heroic duty. In reality, Carl's rank in Europe for the most part was sergeant, as he wasn't promoted to lieutenant until nearly six months after the armistice was signed and only one month before he was shipped home to the United States and discharged from the Army. The U.S. War Department states Wanderer never won any citations for valor. I could go on, but I think you get the point. As far as James goes, the narrative, as Nash tells it, rather than reporter Harry Romanoff being sent to retrieve the love letter Carl had written to Julia, the circumstances of which both Romanoff and Wanderer testified to in open court under threat of perjury, Nash replaces that narrative with Hecht instead being the one who found not only a love letter to James, but also the $1,500 cash that Ruth had withdrawn from the bank the day of the murder. This, again, despite Ruth's mother, Eugenia Johnson, having testified in open court that she had been the one to have found the money. And it bears repeating here, Nash wrote this over 50 years after the crime happened and was the first one to do so. But there might be a simple, albeit maddening, explanation for the errors. Mr. Nash's Bloodletters and Badmen profiles nearly 500 bad men or gangs with a bibliography in alphabetical order, rather than in chronological or story-specific. In total, it references over 600 books, over 100 periodicals, as well as dozens of newspapers. Sources that evidently covered multiple bad men were often combined, such as Chicago Tribune, 1875-1972. It's a little tough to track down where he gets his facts for the Wanderer entry, but I've identified and researched over 65 sources of his that might have had mention of the Carl Wanderer story. While some sources do have his middle name wrong or his date of birth wrong, none that I found made any mention of James. A later Nash work, 
1990s Encyclopedia of World Crime does list out story-specific sources. But while the Wanderer entry lists multiple sources, none of them mention James. Tellingly, though, perhaps the James narrative was simply fiction from the start. As on the copyright page in the beginning of the 1990 encyclopedia, Nash states, quote, This volume and all other volumes of the Encyclopedia of World Crime have been seeded with information to detect unauthorized use or duplication. That's great for his work getting the proper citations he feels he deserves. Not so great for anyone who reads a history book for, you know, history. You would think the true and true crime would preclude such shenanigans, but who knows. Nash has been a prolific writer that has pumped out many crime books, including two which claim that John Dillinger was not killed outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago, as nearly every other historian believes to be fact, but that instead Dillinger choreographed the whole affair to fake his own death, and the FBI was too embarrassed to admit that they killed the wrong man. Mr. Nash's bio states that he has more than 50 million words in print under his byline and, quote, interviewed and befriended, end quote, which is an interesting way to put it, some of the world's most fascinating persons, including Alfred Hitchcock, John Huston, Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Saul Bellow, and Ben Hecht. Now, in order to give Mr. Nash the benefit of the doubt, let me put forward a few other scenarios. Perhaps, rather than attempting to suss out copyright infringement, the James narrative was started after Mr. Hecht and Mr. Nash became friends. Knowing Hecht's want for hyperbole, it isn't too difficult to picture the two men swigging Johnny Walker, smoking Lucky Strikes or Pall Malls or cigars, while Hecht regales Nash with tales of Wanderer being a homosexual. How Nash would be the first writer to report this narrative, 50 years after the fact, especially as Heck never reported it himself, can only be guessed at. Attempts to reach Mr. Nash have been unsuccessful. Again, in fairness to Mr. Nash, I did a very informal fact check on his encyclopedia, Blood Letters and Bad Men. I used a random number generator to select a page number. I fact checked the first full entry on whatever page was selected, and out of 20 entries that I checked, there were 17 I took no issue with, and only three that contained what I would consider to be some significant leeway from the other narratives of the crimes fact-checked. Which, by the way, I did like the Wanderer story, with contemporaneous news stories given more weight unless exculpatory evidence came out later. None of these 20 stories had anywhere near the level of errors that Mr. Nash's entry on Carl Wanderer does. Perhaps Dead Men Tell No Tales is again at play here. Hecht used it successfully after Wanderer's death, Perhaps Nash did the same after Heck's death. Unfortunately, in a sign of the copy and paste times we live in, this narrative is spread across the internet. The Wanderer tale can be found on websites and blogs regarding murder, wife murder, child murder, murder by war veterans, notable Chicago murders, and on and on. Many of the biographies of Wanderer on these sites are simply copied from somewhere else on the internet, if not directly from Nash's book. As is often the case, if a myth is repeated often enough and widely enough, it seems to become fact. Hopefully, I've given you a reason to look at those facts a little differently. 
I believe Eddie Ryan was the ragged stranger. I'd love to be including definitive evidence one way or another as to who or who was not the ragged stranger. But alas, I didn't find it. And I hope you'll trust that it certainly wasn't for lack of looking. He lived a hard life in a short time before fate introduced him to Carl Wanderer and brought him into that vestibule that night. I'd like to hope those hard times hadn't forced him into prior robberies or other nefarious deeds, and he simply wanted an honest job and met Carl Wanderer, one of the most dishonest men the ragged stranger would ever meet. Whatever led him to be clad in rags, whether traumatic horrors in war, hard times or vice, he died a stranger, a final indignation, leaving this world anonymously. In episode five, when telling about pacing through Glen Oak Cemetery, looking for the ragged stranger's grave, I told of how I'd been unable to find it. Well, in subsequent trips to the cemetery, and with the help of an extremely helpful caretaker that had been at the cemetery for over 30 years, I was able to find the grave and confirm that no headstone had ever been interred. To mark the grave, the caretaker and I pounded into the ground a thin wooden stake not much bigger than a paint stir. Written with the black sharpie is the grave number, A-122, and the last name as listed on the index card in the cemetery's files, Stranger. At some point in the future, we will be launching a GoFundMe campaign to raise funds for the headstone the ragged stranger was supposed to have long ago. It will read, Here lies the ragged stranger. Born, unknown date. Died, June 21st, 1920. More details about the campaign will follow. Which, if you haven't already, the ragged stranger blog on Chicago Now has an easy email sign up if you'd like to stay informed about future developments. We never share your information and we never send out unnecessary emails. A follow-up to this project is currently being researched and written, and will tell how Eddie Ryan was given up for adoption at the age of six after the death of his father, and went to live on a farm in South Dakota until the age of 15, when he left to go see the world, as he wrote in a letter to his mother. How fate led his journey from the dusty plains of South Dakota to his death in a tiny vestibule in Chicago eight years later, will be told in Eddie Ryan, The Life of the Ragged Stranger. Carl Wanderer was a charming man when he wanted to be. He had many female admirers before and after Ruth, and his charm was not limited to women. His father-in-law and brother-in-law fell for his guise as well, going so far as to hire an attorney for the man that murdered their dear Ruth. Most likely Carl would be termed a psychopath today, his indifference to human life, his impulsive and narcissistic behavior, his detached emotions, his trouble telling the truth, are but a few of his mental defects that would line up with such a diagnosis. Without being able to subject him to modern examinations, the impact of hereditary insanity from his mother and uncle will never be known, nor will the trauma to his brain caused by baseballs falling from horses or running into things. Despite his travails and troubles, I in no way believe Carl a victim. His hands are bloody, he committed terrible crimes, and any and all penalties he received were justly earned. I believe his confession to be a reasonably true admission of guilt, yet the circumstances surrounding how the confession was gained are less than ideal. His confinement for those three days 
culminating in a 16-hour third-degree interrogation, would likely have been a get-out-of-jail-free ticket for Carl had they happened today. Also less than ideal was his trial before Judge David, without even getting into the peculiarities of Judge David himself. I have no qualms with Wander being tried for his wife's murder and the ragged stranger as far as double jeopardy is concerned, but anyone who believed the ragged stranger jury would come up with a verdict other than a death sentence must not have been reading the Chicago papers. The anger of the populace was stoked by the newspapers and pretty much guaranteed that there would be no compromise verdict the second time around. Yet, justice was served, eventually. I sincerely thank you for listening and hope for your continued support in the future. You can follow along with future developments at www.theraggedstranger.com and on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. My special thanks goes out to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for their help in producing this podcast. Thank you to June Apple Recordings for the use of The Butcher's Boy. And though the rest of the music we've used in this podcast has been in the public domain, we'd like to thank and acknowledge them now. Our intro theme music for the podcast is The Crocodile by the Weedhoft Wadsworth Quartet, written by Otto Motson and Harry Axt, and recorded March 1st, 1920 in New York City. The performers credited were Harry Axt on piano, Carl Fenton also on piano, George Hamilton Green on the xylophone, J. Russell Robinson again on piano, F. Wheeler Wadsworth on the alto saxophone, and Rudy Wiedhoft also on the alto saxophone. The song Carl sang on the gallows was titled Old Pal, Why Don't You Answer Me, and was performed by Ernest Hare, Rudy Wiedhoft, and was written by Sam Lewis and Joe Young, and composed by M.K. Jerome. We're going to leave you for the last time, again, with the song The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. Again, the song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy, and thank you again for listening. She went upstairs to make a bed And not one word to a mother Mother, she went upstairs too. Says, daughter, dear daughter, what troubles you? Oh, mother, oh, mother, I cannot tell that railroad boy I love so well. He's courted me. My life away, and now at home he will not stay. There is a place in London town where that railroad boy goes and sits down. takes that strange girl on his knee and he tells to her what he won't tell me her father
brother, he came in from work and said, Where's daughter? She seems so hurt. He went upstairs to give her hope, but found her hanging on a took his knife and cut her down and in her bosom these words he found go dig my grave both wide and deep place a marble slab at my head and feet And over my coffin place a snow white dove To warn this world that I died for love